and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 467th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Dr. Peter Makovicki, professor of Department of Earth and Environmental Studies and Sciences at the University of Minnesota, who is going to talk to us about dinosaurs in Missouri. The history buffs for today's show are Jay Swords and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker. Uh, to begin with, we'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Makovicki to the show. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. It's a privilege to have you. We call this first segment Fadruk Danarin, and our goal is to give the listeners a little bit of a background on this subject. So, if you can start us off with some basic information about what happened in Missouri in only about 90 million years ago, you know, a short little request. Uh, feel free. Help yourself. Floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. So, um... The find we're going to talk about today actually uh, has its roots in obviously prehistory, but also in, in more recent history. So in the 19, uh, around 1940, a local family in southeastern Missouri called the Chronisters were digging a cistern behind their house. And um, they were simply to collect rainwater for their uh, livestock. And just as chance would have it, there was a, a geologist from the Missouri Geological Survey in the area looking for clay deposits. Um, he came across the family. They told him they found a lot of clay while digging the cistern and showed him these, what they thought were cow bones that they'd found. Um, those, uh, long story short, those turned out to be the first dinosaur bones ever found in Missouri. Um, and then uh, subsequently, you know, the site was acquired uh, by uh, a former geology professor for its uh, paleontological significance and has been dug on and off since the 1990s uh, and resulting now in, in the discovery of several skeletons of duckbill dinosaurs. These are the only dinosaurs known from Missouri. Uh, so they provide us a very unique insight into what this part of the country looked like uh, in the Mesozoic. It, it's not a, a time period that's well represented in the geology of Missouri. So it's a very unique time window uh, for us to examine that part of the world. Can you describe to our listeners uh, the makeup, the physical makeup of these dinosaurs from what they guessed? Yeah, so uh, these are duck-billed dinosaurs. So they have they're they're herbivorous dinosaurs. Um, they're quite large. Uh, we estimate that the adults are about thirty feet long, so about the length of a school bus, weighing maybe three tons. So sizable animals uh, on on the sort of order of a small elephant, and um, they they're called duck bills because the front of their jaws flare out into this sort of wide toothless beak. And then behind that beak, they have uh, batteries of, of small teeth for grinding up uh, the plant material that they eat. What's unusual uh, for North American duckbill dinosaurs uh, in, in this species, which was named Parasaurus when the first uh, find was made in the 1940s, 
is that it has a big spike on its thumb. So if you think of the, the last knuckle of your thumb, that's turned into a three-inch spike on this, um, on this duck-billed dinosaur. Okay. So um, is it – what part in Missouri, uh, what location were these bones found? As you said before, kind of in, in the back of a uh, – on a car, in a farm with uh, cows. But how far do you sit there and think or have any idea that these dinosaurs might have roamed? I mean, I know Missouri is a lot different now than it was 90 million years ago. But um, what, how vast are, did you think these uh, species spread out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things that, that limits us in, in, in figuring these things out is, of course, how much of the rock record is available to us. Now, the thing about Missouri is there's, there's plenty of rocks, as anyone who lives there knows, but um, these rocks are actually much older than the age of dinosaurs uh, for the most part. And so you just have this one unique little pocket, as it were, of clay um, and, and the dinosaurs are actually coming out of a, 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 a soft clay um, that formed where you have this just this one unique by chance locality uh, that they're coming out of. So we don't know how far they, they would have spread. We do know that they are related to um, other similar looking duck-billed dinosaurs from Utah and from Texas. So the sort of the evolutionary stock they come from was fairly widespread, um, probably before and right around the time that uh, the North American continent became um, partially covered by a big seaway from about 105 million years ago to 75 million years ago. Okay, since you opened that door, could you explain to our listeners about that sieve wave? Because honestly, I've never heard that before. And how would that have impacted the possibility of finding, finding more uh, fossils? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, during the middle of the Cretaceous period, um, the, we had the, what we call the highest global high stand in sea levels. Um, so sea levels were uh, over... 200 feet higher than they are today, um, or even up to 500 feet higher at, at the most. Um, and that actually means that the middle part of the country, um, in fact, where I am in Minnesota and where you guys are in Iowa, would have been underwater, uh, at least for parts of that time. And uh, so if you go a little bit uh, southwest of you from, from Iowa into Kansas, you're going to find big marine deposits from that age that are full of marine organisms, fish and giant uh, aquatic marine reptiles um, that lived at that time. Um, and that lasted on and off. The seaway waxed and waned, but it lasted for about 30 million years um, until sea levels dropped uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but one being, of course, part of the continent was being pushed up as the Rockies were being formed. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of the show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. Today's
always hit music. It's on The Stinger. The Stinger is more than music. You can binge on your favorite KALA podcast series. Take us along anywhere you go on any device. Find The Stinger now at TuneIn.com. Search for The Stinger, operated by KALA 88.5 FM. The Stinger, today's hit music. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Peter Makovicki, Professor of the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Minnesota. And we're talking about dinosaurs in Missouri. Our history bus for today's show are Jay Swords and Ed Broders. And Jay, since you're probably going to be a paleontologist in your next life, whenever that is, <laughs> you, right. the first question is yours. That would have brought me full circle because <laughs> yeah. that was that was my job description when I was eight or nine. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, um, Peter, I, I'm interested. Uh, my sense is that that the the dinosaurs that you found, these duckbill dinosaurs, are different, uh, designated as a new species here in the, in the last dig that you did. Can you talk to us about the differences, how you, how you go about the process of determining whether uh, fossils belong to one species or whether they're completely new? Because I think most people, you know, we hear about different, about speciation. We're not quite sure how you, you make that determination. Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. And and in the case of Parasaurus missouriensis, which is the duckbilled dinosaur from Missouri, it, it, it gets even messier than that. Um, so uh, there's a formal process for naming species, be they extinct ones like dinosaurs or living ones. And um, it, it involves a couple of steps. And, and the first of these is you have to properly diagnose the species. It means you actually have to find some features or traits of the species that distinguish it from other similar species. This can be the shape of the bones. It can be a unique set of, of measurements in, in some part of the body. Or these days, if you're looking at, at living species, it can be uh, you know a unique combination of genes that, that set them apart. Um, and then you have to actually publish that. Uh, you have to publish it in, in, in a proper scientific journal where it's peer-reviewed, and there has to be a diagnosis and an illustration. Now, um, as you can imagine, if you go back far enough into the history of paleontology, um, people had a lot less, knew a lot less. They were working with less material. Uh, of course, our knowledge has accumulated since then. So since Parasaurus was actually found in 1940, um, the diagnosis was based on, on just a series of tail vertebrae that weren't actually that distinguishing. They, they weren't very good in terms of setting it apart from other species. And that did lead to a long and tortured uh, history of, of naming and renaming that I won't, you know, I won't bother the, the listeners with. But now that we have uh, a couple of fairly complete finds, we are starting to find some unique features um, in different parts of the skeleton, not just one bone or two bones, but across the skeleton that are helping us uh, establish that, yes, indeed, Parasaurus is, in fact, its own unique species, different from any other 
duckbill dinosaur yet discovered. Okay. Ed. Thanks, John. Um, Peter, you mentioned that, uh, that this new species was found in a pocket of clay. Um, can you explain to us um, how unusual that is? Because it's not like Missouri's in the middle of a desert, like Utah, New Mexico, yeah. wherever. Yeah. Um, so you're sort of uh, combining two factors that are important in finding fossils there. One is that you need to have, usually when you find fossils, it's because you have exposed rock surfaces. And that's why we find so many fossils in the desert. Obviously, with less vegetation, it's easier to see the bedrock. The fossils are much easier to locate. That's not the case in, in southeastern Missouri, of course, which is heavily forested. Um, and, and in this case, it was sheer luck that, that the Chronister family was happened to dig in just the spot they chose to dig in. Um, the other factor, of course, is that um, the rocks around there, the rocks forming the hills, uh, uh, we are at the edge of the Ozarks at this site, are all much older uh, rocks than from the age of dinosaurs. So what we think happened here is that um, a, a chunk of the, the Earth's crust actually dropped down along a fault line. And there are many fault lines there that are related to the to the big 1812 New Madrid earthquake in that area. And so one of these downdrop blocks sort of created a, a, a depression that filled in during Cretaceous times with, um, with runoff and water and, and obviously dinosaur and turtle skeletons. Um, so that's, that's how we think the site formed. But we don't actually know how extensive this clay is. We, we, we just hit this one little corner of it. Okay. Are there other, I know you're not necessarily going to find other um, species of dinosaurs in this same area, but during this time period, what are some other um, species that possibly could have been amongst this species uh, roaming that part of the world? Well, uh, there are some intriguing uh, finds that that help us uh, at least uh, visualize what the ecosystem was like. Um, so besides the, the duckbill dinosaurs, we do find a, really an abundance of turtles. We've, we've collected over probably parts of 20 turtles, some of them fairly complete. Um, and these, these are big dinner plate size and, and, and hubcap size turtle shells. Um, so we know it was rich in turtles. We have uh, some fish skeletons that tell us that fish that some of you might recognize gar pike, things like that were around. Um, and then we have just a couple of intriguing hints at what else might be there, including um, two teeth uh, from meat-eating dinosaurs, one small, probably an animal, very similar to Velociraptor, and then a larger tooth that looks like it came from some kind of Tyrannosaur. Uh, so not T-Rex, but one of its earlier and somewhat smaller relatives. Um, so there's, there is a possibility that we can find more as, as we keep uh, digging our way into the deposit. Okay. Jay. So, Pete, I, I'd like you to kind of talk us through the process of collecting and, and um, processing uh, dinosaurs, particularly when we're talking about animals, uh, you know, the size of, of these duckbill dinosaurs. Um, 
you know, it's it's not the sort of thing that that you can you know just pack out a thigh bone, um, you know, and uh, and and take it down to the local whatever. So talk to us about the process that yeah. that goes into collecting, and and then you know, so once you get it off site somewhere where you can work on it, what's that look like? They got the local garage sale down the yeah. street, so you can just drop it off and people go at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So. Uh, I guess what I'll, I'll explain is sort of the usual process that we're used to and then what makes this site so different. Um, so normally uh, you start by locating a fossil and, and obviously it's, it's going to be partly buried and, and so you're going to remove the overburden, uh, the rock that's lying above it, and then as you get closer and closer to the fossil itself, you switch from larger tools like picks and shovels or jackhammers down to smaller tools. Um, and you sort of work your way around the fossil. You don't try to clean it off entirely in the field because you don't want to do that under sort of field conditions. So rather what you do is you, you wrap it with plaster and burlap and you create sort of a, a, a firm plaster jacket around one side then carefully flip the, the fossil over. You pedestal under the plaster jacket, flip it over, cover the other side. And then when it's dry, you have a fully enclosed jacketed fossil that you would transport out of the field. You bring it to a museum, open that up, and then carefully using a variety of tools, which will remind you of the tools that your dentist has, you know, sort of pneumatic tools, carefully clean it, with technicians will work on it under microscopes. They'll apply adhesives. So that's a normal process. Um, now, the difference with Missouri is, a, uh, as I said, it's, it's a soft, wet clay. And so the, the, the fossils are basically wet in the ground. So we have to use a different set of adhesives. Um, we really have to stay very kind of gentle with the bones because when they're wet, they tend to crumble very easily. So we're really just outlining. Every time we hit bone, we'll put in a little, you know, stake. We use those little bamboo uh, grill skewers with a little flag on it and just kind of map our way gently around it. And then when we can identify or isolate a block of bone, we'll carefully jacket it um, and repeat the process. Now, one of the problems with wet clay is you have the water weight in there. So it's not just the weight of the clay. It's the weight of the, the clay plus the water, which makes the jackets incredibly heavy, probably not quite twice, but at least one and a half times the weight of a corresponding yeah. jacket if you were collecting it, let's say, in Utah. And the clay has no, in, no strength. It has no sort of – rock will have some structural strength. Clay has none. So you really have to think about when you're collecting things – how to strengthen those plaster jackets. Um, so we'll put metal bars in there. We'll put two by fours. So it becomes a bit of a production. And the last jacket, which contained the body of an adult duckbill and an adult parasaurus that we took out last um, October, probably weighed 2,500 pounds. So you have to think structurally of how are you going to flip a 2,500 pound block of clay gently and then heave it out of a hole um the nice thing is we can get a lot of uh heavy equipment into the site so we've had the benefit of being able to use 
uh, a variety of, of, of excavators and skid steers and so on to help with this. Okay. Ed. Thanks, John. Um, Peter, you mentioned that uh, the best guess at this time is that um, these bones became lodged in this clay about the time of the Madrid Fault and the, and the accompanying earthquake. So that tells us that these bones were probably, fo- that these were fossilized long before they found their way into the clay. Is that right? Uh, no. Um, the fault lines that moved when the New Madrid earthquake happened, those have been there for over 400 million years. So they've been moving back and forth. The New Madrid's just the one big earthquake that we're all familiar with. Um, but the entire Mississippi uh, Valley is essentially a huge fault line that, that goes back 400 million years. Um, so these faults have been moving and shearing past each other, and parts have been moving up and down relative to each other. So what we think is is probably around the time that um, these dinosaurs were alive, you had a, a small block uh, of rock being dropped down along a fault, and that created a depression that filled in with the clay. So it would have been around, you know, roughly when the, or shortly before the dinosaurs were alive. So, Pete, my my next question to sort of piggyback off of what Ed was asking, um, how do we think that this particular uh, bone bed was created? Is is this a a flood event that trapped a number of animals? Um, was there something there that that would have happened that that you know? these animals tended to to die sort of in the same rough place at rough same time um you know how do you end up with a with a collection like this where you have so many different um species or or you know gathered all in one place that's a great question um it's it's one we're still working on so I, i i don't have a definitive answer for you um but we do know that uh, there seem to have been multiple events um, that resulted in fossils coming into the site. And we know that because we have stacked layers of fossils. So um, right under the, our main dinosaur layer, where we have, uh, we think, parts of two, if not three skeletons, um, we have, as I, as I already mentioned, a, a lot of turtles. In, in fact, a whole layer of turtles. Um, that probably either washed in um, as part of some kind of flooding event or, or maybe uh, conversely died in some kind of uh, died right where, where they were. We get the dinosaurs on top of that. Um, we have a large adult dinosaur and then next to it a tail of yet another one. And a little ways away, a, uh, a, a juvenile skeleton that seemed to be roughly at the same level in the clay, suggesting that they they were all in place or buried at the same time. And then we have more turtles on top. So we know that that these uh, these, uh, fossilization events were episodic. It wasn't one single event that that, uh, resulted in all the finds were there. Now, uh, we're obviously most interested in the dinosaurs. And and as I said, it it seems like, uh, as best we can tell, they're they're about the same level in the clay, suggesting that 
they were all buried as part of the same event. Um, now, we know that their, their carcasses didn't travel far, and we know that because they're, they're articulated, which means that all the bones are next to each other in their natural positions, the way that the joints would, would dictate. So uh, the, the carcasses are going incomplete and being buried before they can sort of be, uh, before they can fall apart too much. Uh, so it suggests that uh, some event, it could very likely be flooding, killed these animals um, very near where they were buried, and they were all washed in together. Um, and the fact that we have multiple stacked layers of fossils uh, suggests that this, this was probably a low point or, or a shoaling point in whatever water body they were in, and that the carcasses just piled up there, floated in, got stuck, got buried, next layer of fossils came in. Um, but we would like, certainly like to know more, and, and, and as we keep digging, we hope we can get more clues to the, the exact nature of what happened at that time. Okay. Um, this is the last question before I give you the final word. How did the community, um, having news like this, it always impacts the community, how did they react to the news, if I may ask? Well, the, the the wonderful thing about this is is that this is very much a uh, community driven project. So I was um, I was actually invited onto this by um, uh, locals in Missouri who had been working the site for uh, well since the 1990s and, and had an attachment to it and um, had put in a lot of their own time and work into it and, and wanted that to continue. So we have a we have a really strong engagement from the local community um, in, in Bollinger County. And then a lot of the material is, is going to um, a local museum uh, in St. Genevieve in Missouri. Uh, so there, there's really strong, I think, uh, community support for this. And uh, honestly, we would not have been able to do everything we've been able to do um, without, you know, the, the tireless spirit of, of, so many neighbors and, and friends in the in the community that are doing it, um, and so they've set up a, uh, a nonprofit organization um, that that I'm happy to, and proud to be a member of the board of to basically safeguard this site for for future research and 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 uh, educational purposes. Okay, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. Peter, why do you think knowing? about life millions of years ago is so relevant in today's world? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of interesting science uh, related to this site and to paleontology in general that, that provides us uh, insights and understanding for some of the challenges confronting us today. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the program, you know, this was a time of, of very high level, uh, high sea levels. Um, rising sea levels are something we're contending with now. Um, increased storm activity is, is, is flooding a lot of East Coast cities and cities around the world. Um, so here, here's an example in the fossil record uh, where we can actually look at what that, what that looks like um, and how that affected uh, environments all across the world. So. There are valuable lessons to be learned, uh, you know, sort of from the old adage that the, the past is the key to the present. 
Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on station KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 467 show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Peter Makovicki, professor of the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Minnesota, who talked to us about dinosaurs in Missouri. The history bus for today's show were Jay Swords and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on station KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.